Daniel 11, starting at verse 1. Daniel 11, starting at verse 1, and we'll stand to give honor to the word of the Lord as we read, beginning at Daniel 11, verse 1. This is God's holy and infallible word. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Let's pray together. Father, help us to understand this, your word, and to receive and believe and to understand your hand even in the matters of world history, even for the preparation of the coming of your Son, even Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Daniel opens with God's people in captivity. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and many, many others were in captivity in Babylon. So the book opens with them in Babylon, and then at, um, later on, Babylon is overtaken by the Medes, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. And at this point in history, uh, Daniel, <coughs> Daniel is serving and working on behalf of uh, the, the uh, Persian Empire. Now, we will look a little bit at this matter of how this is, today's text is somewhat of a flashback because there are things that happen after this time of this revelation, but it's, it's something like you see in the movies. It's a flashback going back a little bit in time. Now, there are some commonalities between this book and the book of Revelation. One of the things in this book is that I think both books give us a picture of the exalted Son of God in heaven. This book presents a, a, a vision of the exalted Son of God in heaven before his incarnation. The book of Revelation gives us a very similar view or or vision of the eternal Son of God after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension unto heaven. But one thing we'll find out in today's text is that if you haven't picked up on it, there is a lot of repeating going on in this book of prophecy. It's not giving the same exact prophetic truths over again, but it's repeating the same thing, but giving more details. Uh, let's look back at chapter 8. Chapter 8. 
Um, we're going to skim around a little bit, but in, in chapter 8, at the very beginning, um, Daniel gets a vision of a ram and a goat, and this ram represents the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. Um, if you look at verse 20, it says, I'm, I'm, I'm cutting to the chase here and going back to verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, then later on he gives this vision of a goat. And the goat, it says, the shaggy goat, verse 21, represents the kingdom of Greece. And to get a little, just to again summarize what's told here, is this, this goat really wrecks havoc on the ram, overtakes the ram, and it becomes dominant. So chapter 8 of Daniel, if you want to summarize it, you could say chapter 8 can be summarized in that Greece overtakes Persia, or the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. It was the, per, the, the empire of the Medes and Persians, which later on just became called the, the Persian Empire. Now, you might ask, why does God in his word and revealing this book to us repeat himself? Because if, I guess I should just tell you, if you haven't caught it when we were studying uh, 11, 1 through 4, if you want to summarize verses 1 through 4, Greece overtakes Persia. That's what's told here in the passage we just read. It's the same thing that's said in chapter 8. The big difference is the remainder of chapter 11, from verses 5 to the end of the chapter, gives a lot more details of the divided kingdom and what goes on after the division of the kingdom, after the death of Alexander the Great. We're not looking at that today, but we'll, Lord willing, be looking at that. And I do ask your prayers for my preparation because some of that might seem like tedious details and we need to see about um, understanding it in a biblical fashion but not making it weary so at the end of daniel 10 at the end of daniel 10 um, we're we're finding out a little bit more of the context of what's going on now this is not daniel speaking in the beginning of 11. All of chapter 11 is something foretold by an angel. Look at verse 14. This is an angel sent to strengthen Daniel. Verse 14 of chapter 10. Now I have come to give you, this is the angel speaking to Daniel, now I have come again to you, Daniel, to give you understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. And if you look at verse uh, 21, he says, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Okay, so what the angel is getting ready to tell Daniel are details about the future. And it's so set, it's so trustworthy it's described as the writing of truth days that are yet future that have yet to come to pass um, again all of chapter 11 and even the very beginning 
of chapter 12, which chapter 11 is very long, but the beginning of chapter 12 is all what is said to Daniel by the voice of an angel that's giving him uh, God's uh, details about the future. Now, you might say, well, what does it really matter? Greece, Persia, aren't we studying about God's people? Well, yeah, God's people are under the oppression and the captivity of the Persians um, because they were under the captivity of the Babylonians, which then got overtaken by the Persians. Now they're under the captivity of the Persians. And then later on, because the next group comes in, the Greeks, they are going to be under the rule of the Greek Empire. So we'll look at today's text in two main points. The rise of the Persian Empire, and then secondly, the rise and division of the Greek Empire. So let's look at this first main point, the rise of the Persian Empire. Now, before we get a little bit into the details of the Revelation, there's a comment of what the angel is doing in verse 1. At first, I was thinking this was Daniel, but this is actually what the angel is doing. In the first, <coughs> in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose, the angel arose, to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Man, what is an angel doing as an encouragement and a protection for a pagan king? Well, um, the angels have dealings. The angel was given to strengthen Daniel, to encourage Daniel. And here the angel has a role in the life of this Darius the Mede. Um, this Darius the Mede is the same guy who took over the kingdom which was given to the Babylonians. You remember you had that writing on the wall uh, by the hand of God, and then Daniel interprets it, and that very same night Belshazzar dies, and that was the end of the Babylonian Empire, and that's when Darius the Mede becomes the one ruling here. And this is the time in which, again, that goes all the way back to chapter 5. Remember? Flashback, right? All right, so it's this angel serving and helping, encouraging and protecting Darius the Mede because he has a role in history until the time when another empire rises. And God has a purpose for the next empire. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at age 62, we find out. In verse 2, the angel gives some details of the Persian Empire that happens after Darius. And now I will tell you the truth, the angel says. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. Okay, I, I just read an estimate it was in the Guinness Book of World Records, and I checked it with another source to make sure it was legit. The height of the Persian Empire had 49.4 million people in it at the height of the Persian Empire. 49.4 million people. 
And they were saying that the estimation of the world population at that time was 112 million people, making up 44% of the known world, the world population. That's a humongous empire. Again, it, it arose gaining far more riches than all of them. So you could say, okay, so you have this king, Darius. Three more kings are going to arise in Persia. A fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. That's at the height of the empire, 49.4 million. That's because all the vassal states who were members of the Persian empire had to pay tribute to the Persians. If you didn't pay tribute to the Persian empire, you would have your, your cities or your, your nation surrounded, besieged, and everyone would be destroyed. Um, verse 2 again says, The fourth king had far more riches. And it goes on to say that as soon as he became strong with his riches, um, he will um, arouse the whole empire against the realms of Greece. He's not happy with 49.4 million. He wants to be, maybe he wants to have the whole of the entire earth because he, he, they want to take over the entire earth. And a, a group of scholars named Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown mentioned that this king here with the immense riches than all of them was Xerxes. He, they say this, his riches were proverbial. Persia reached its climax and showed its, greater, its greatest power at the time and when they invaded Greece in 480 BC. It says that they spent four years gathering the army. Look at verse, uh, before we go there, look at verse, uh, again, chapter 11. It says that as soon as he became rich, it says he will arouse the whole empire gathering armies against the realm of Greece. So they spent four years gathering a vast army. And listen to this. The army numbered 2,641,000 men as they were going to take over the kingdom of Greece. And they were doing a good job. They were, they were on the mainland of Greece and they were taking over a great amount of territory. But they lost one essential naval battle at this place called Salamis. And Persia, after this point, was considered politically dead after that failure. I want to read you a little excerpt of this battle. This battle was so important that you could say it was one of the most pivotal battles in history. If it wasn't for this battle, the Greek Empire would have been totally annihilated and would have been taken over, and then there would be no more Greek Empire. There would have been no more Greek influence. It would have all been a Persian Empire throughout the entire land. There would have been no Greek. New, there would no. There would have been no Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. We wouldn't have had the Greek language to unify the people, to spread the word of God during the, the New Testament era. But according to Britannica, it says, 
in, by the year 480, the Persian king Xerxes and his army had overrun much of Greece. The navy of Persia had 800 ships, galley ships. That's the kind where they would have rows and rows of, of rowers. And they had a smaller Greek fleet of 370, far outnumbered. More than double the amount on the Persian side. The difference, I guess, I was looking at some of this history, is that the Greek, the Greek ships actually had multiple levels of rowers. So you had, a, you had like, two, like a two-story building where you had rowers on the top level, and then you had rowers rowing below the top rowers. So they can get more speed and momentum to go ram the other ships it was a, you could say, a, a different type of invention. And you'd say, it says that they maneuvered the Persian ships into a strait of Salamis. And the Persian ships had difficulty maneuvering. The Greeks attacked ferociously. They rammed and sunk many of the Persian vessels and boarded others. The Greeks sank about 300 Persian vessels and only lost 40 decisive, massive battle on the part of the Greeks in which they won, you could say, they, some people say this is the, the first real great naval battle in the history of the world, and it was a massive one. 800 ships on one side and uh, 370 on the other. This battle, again, was a turning point in history. And that battle led to the rise and unification of the Greeks against the Persians. And now we'll, we'll see the rise and division of the Greek Empire. Um, look at verse 3. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority, and do as he pleases. If there's ever a loaded verse in Scripture, it's this one. Mighty king will arise, Alexander the Great, doing as he pleases. Hmm. How can we summarize doing as he pleases? Um, getting back to the to the imagery of the goat. You remember he was there was the goat that goes up against the ram, and the goat defeats the ram. And this goat is described as going so fast it's running, but its feet aren't even touching the ground. That's how fast this goat is going. It's like super fast goat in the way it's taking over the Persians. And Alexander the Great started his rule at the age of 20. Um, this is approximately 24 years after this great naval battle of Salamis. And uh, he started his rule at age 20. And by age of 30, he won battle after battle after battle, took over territory in a very rapid fashion, by the age of 30, he created one of the largest world empires in 10 years. You know, it wasn't the Germans who invented the Blitzkrieg, that fast-moving army. It was Alexander the Great, you could say, massively fast in taking over uh, the Persian Empire. It says that his empire and its largest, it ran all the way from Greece to Pakistan. That's like near India, right? Uh, that's a massive amount of territory. Um, one of his downfalls was that his 
men who fought with him hadn't they were made to fight battle after battle after battle they had no relief they had no leave they couldn't go back and see their families and they were so upset with him they actually revolted against him and they some of them caused a mutiny um now it says in verse four it says as soon as he has arisen you remember the height of his kingdom age 30 his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to one of his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. History says that at approximately the age of 32, he died of a fever. And we don't know if it was caused by poison or not. Some people debate whether he was poisoned. But his kingdom became divided into exactly four. And not one of the men who, who ruled after him were his descendants. They were all his uh, highest generals. So that's an exact fulfillment of what's said in this text. But this was foretold far before the birth of Alexander the Great. Why was it important, again, for God to bring forth the Greek rule? Well, one was that you'd have a unified language. You had the Greek language. During the time when Christ came on the scene, there was no longer a Greek empire, it was a Roman empire. But a language that unified the Roman Empire, you could say was more Greek than Latin. Latin was, was rising, but there was, a, there was a great more influence of Greek, especially among God's people. The Hebrew people of different tribes, nations, spread throughout the whole region, all had the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament it's called the Septuagint because it was given by the 70 scholars, the 70 Hebrew scholars who put it together. And very often when you read in your New Testament, you, oftentimes the citations given are not from Hebrew directly. They're actually oftentimes cited from the Septuagint. So a very important point of history that God allowed the rise of the Greek empire for the sake of the kingdom from when Christ came and when the apostles came. Today's text should be an encouragement to you that maybe world history matters. World history matters because God has put it down in his word. It was significant for God's people that these empires, would, some would fall and others would rise. Because God used that and even later on, we find out that God used what they call the Pax Romanus, or the peace of Rome, to help for the spread of the gospel during the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, how, how can God's word tell the future? Because it's the, it comes from the living, holy God in heaven given here, not even by the Holy Spirit, but given by the voice of an angel speaking directly to Daniel, and then Daniel records the, the words of the angel. I want us to uh, look at a passage of Scripture from Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, verse 1. 
Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46 speaks of how God knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, starting in verse 8. God says through the prophet Isaiah, Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is the one who is the authority. He is the one who is over history. He determines the end before the... It says here... He is the one who declares the end from the beginning. The most amazing proof of that is his declaring the end and the, the fullness of salvation even from the very beginning. Remember, even after, right after Adam and Eve sinned, he promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that came to pass all the way back at the very beginning of creation, even before the fall of man, or I'm shortly, sorry, shortly after the fall of man, God prophesied the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Then later on, we're told in Isaiah that a virgin will bear forth a son, seed of the woman, because she has, she's not born of ordinary generation. She's going to give birth to a, as a virgin, she's going to give birth to a child whose name is Emmanuel. And this Emmanuel, then is foretold from the beginning of time, comes in the fullness in the person of Jesus Christ to undo the work of the evil one, and as we sung earlier, to close the gate to misery for all of those who put their faith in him. Let's put our faith in this Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was told, as we read, just read, the end from the very beginning through this wonderful plan of God's grace. Let's pray together. We thank you, our beloved Lord, that you are the sovereign God who rules over all. You are God and there is no other. You are God and there is no one like you, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things which have not yet been done, we thank you that you are the sovereign God whose purpose shall be established and that you will accomplish all according to your good pleasure. And we thank you that it was your good pleasure to send your son to suffer and die for sinners such as us. Help us to put our faith and trust in him, trusting in Jesus alone that he has died for our sins and that he was raised for our justification Thank you, our, our blessed Lord, that you sent your Son to suffer and die for us. Help us to remember that you are the God of history, you are the Almighty, and help us to give you the honor and praise due your name. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord.
Amen. This time, let's turn to our closing hymn, 419, and we'll stand and sing 419, O Zion, haste, your mission high fulfilling, 419.